Welcome to MedCast, the podcast from MedCi, the Maryland State Medical Society. Each episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into medicine and taking an insider's view on issues facing Maryland's physicians and patients and healthcare more broadly. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Today, my guest is Dr. Jim York, president of MedCi. Jim, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us something about your education, and, uh, and welcome. Well, thank you so much. This is a fantastic service that you have. They're very professional and very interesting. It's uh, just great to to get to know a little bit more deeply all the various uh, colleagues that we work with and, and interact with. It's uh, it's fantastic, and uh, you've done a, a fantastic job with this. Well, so, thank you. Uh, I come from uh, originally Schenectady, New York, uh, when my great grandparents and grandparents uh, came over from Ireland. They settled in the uh, Schenectady, Troy, New York area and rolled up their sleeves and uh, were blue collar workers. And uh, Schenectady is a, a nice uh, immigrant town. Uh, General Electric was their core industry. And so it was sort of like the Silicon Valley of its day, huge advances in electricity and electrical equipment and large steam generators. And so we had mostly Irish and Italian and and Polish in the town, ready to get to work and raise their families. And uh, my uh, grandfather uh, ended up, uh, he was the youngest of, of that family. And back in the early 20th century, uh, after graduating from high school, he went to medical school. He went to Albany Medical School and, um, and became a general practitioner, moved to Schenectady, and then uh, raised a family. He, in fact, he served in the 1918 flu pandemic, and he passed away a year before I was born, and I was named after him. And this became very uh, special to me during uh, our war in the uh, COVID epidemic, and I carried a picture of uh, him in my wallet. He was in his early 30s and fortunately never got sick, although people that were a little older didn't. But he just worked like crazy. There's a lot of house calls in those days and um, just uh, went out and took care of people, whether they could pay or not. And then uh, he got training as a pediatrician after a few years in general practice and then uh, became the uh, first pediatrician in Schenectady. And uh, so then my dad, he ended up also becoming a doctor and being a, a pediatrician. And um, so grew up with the, the medical background. My my uh, was a nurse. Um, so my first jobs were shoveling snow. So when I was in grade school and high school, we got lots and lots and lots of snow in Schenectady. And I made a lot of money shoveling people's cars out, shoveling people's walks and driveways. And then, uh, in high school, uh, my last two years, I worked at uh, Burger King during the summers and, uh, got to know that a little bit about the food industry and lots of free food. So my interest in medicine came sort of organically from my family. But really, with me, it was science. Ever since I was a little kid, I was just fascinated by science, especially astronomy. You know, and my grandmother um, encouraged that. Uh, when I was six years old, she got me a telescope and I had an erector set. I loved making things with erector sets and tinker toys and Legos. And so I built a little and, telescope. And that led you into orthopedics. <laughs> Eventually, yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but, it, but yes. And, you know, my mother's father was a tool and die maker in General Electric. Mm. So the tool and die maker is the person that you have a product line. And so well, how do you set up the whole production line? How do you set up the tools to make the tools and the service line? And so what he did, and he basically taught himself. He was a laborer down in, in uh, Pennsylvania where that part of the family immigrated to. And his brother came up to Schenectady and he came up to visit. And 
the family's Loris, he actually met uh, Thomas Edison and went down to GE, was looking and said, what are you doing here? I said, you want to work? He goes, yeah. So he started, you know, and made his way up the chain and uh, actually became a pretty high level designer. And, um, and so during World War II, he was getting older and he wanted to retire. They wouldn't let him retire. And interestingly, yeah. during the Depression, in order to keep people on, they would uh, alternate your one week on one. So they didn't fire people as much as they did one week on one. So they could keep production going, but not, you know, reduce their overhead and so on like that. So that's how the my mother's the family made it through the uh, Depression. And uh, so anyway, he was always good with his hands. And ever since I can remember, I, I love to do things with tools. I never met a tool I didn't like. So <laughs> anyway, got astronomy and uh, reading books about that, being kind of a nerd with that and drawing maps of the moon. And, and then later I became interested in chemistry. I remember reading uh, my father's uh, high school chemistry books and learning that stuff. And, uh, and just doing things that kids do, going out and playing sports and riding bikes and getting into mischief. <laughs> so I um, ended up uh, deciding to go to Georgetown and um, deciding to major in chemistry because I really just loved it. I still do. And then uh, I figured I would become a, uh, go to pre-med because it seemed like a natural thing to do. But I also thought of just continuing on in science. And, uh, you know, Georgetown was great, too, because they really, it's a Jesuit uh, institution, and they they really emphasize learning how to think. So whatever course you're in, whether it's chemistry or theology or philosophy or whatever, it's really, they teach you to question, teach you to think, teach you to ask questions, and, and I like that that kind of training. And uh, so then it was very difficult to get into medical school in those days, and I think only one out of, one out of 10 or one out of 20 got in or whatever. So I applied to lots of medical schools, including Georgetown and Albany and others. And I also applied for the University of Maryland for a master's program in chemical engineering. So I thought that would be very interesting to do. In fact, I got that position way before medical school and was set up to do that. Also applied for some chemistry jobs, but didn't really pursue that. And then I didn't get in, into medical school until like a month or so before school started. And I thought, well, which way do I want to go? And uh, so I decided on, on medical school. And uh, thoroughly enjoyed all that. You know, during uh, during college too, I uh, had a lot of interesting jobs. I worked in the Marriott, the first one that the Marriotts had down near the Pentagon. So I was a bellman and a bartender, and I loved it because I'm constantly meeting thousands of people from all over the world in all walks of life, just talking to them, asking them what they like and what they dislike about their life and their jobs. And so I just learned a lot. I had some really interesting experiences. I remember one time, you know, of course, I'm a child of the Cold War. The Cold War was a huge thing all while we were growing up and the threat of nuclear Armageddon and that kind of stuff. And then it was wonderful because um, I was in college, I started to wind down and they had glasnost and, um, and they started having more contacts back and forth. And so a Russian wrestling team stayed there at the hotel. And uh, so I, I was took German in college. I took French in high school. And so I spoke to the, uh, whoever's, he's probably KGB, but <laughs> I spoke to this guy and I wanted a ruble because you know, he could never get rubles. So I had a little conversation in German because we both spoke some German. I didn't speak any Russian at the time, although I learned some later. And um, so I got a ruble and I gave him a dollar. And uh, I think he made out on that deal. He did. But <laughs> that was interesting. And uh, so getting into medical school and uh, Georgetown, uh, lost their uh, DC state-like funding 
early on, tuition just absolutely exploded. So I borrowed money from my first year. My father had already uh, retired by that point. So I was basically on my own. And so then second year, it just went way up. And it was like, well, either I'm going to hit the streets or... Uh, so most of our class of 205 signed on with one of the military health professional scholarship program or, um, or the public health. And so I applied to Air, Army and Air Force. And I've always kind of liked the military ever since I was a kid. I don't know. It's one of those things. And um, so I thought, well, Air Force bases tend to be out in the middle of nowhere, you know, like missile bases <laughs> and stuff like that. And Navy, you're way out on a ship, and I didn't want to be away from my wife. And so I took the Army. And uh, so that was a really good experience and uh, a way to pay through medical school. And there's a little add-on story about that, about getting interested in advocacy. So that's uh, kind of the medical school trip. And then, you know, orthopedics. I was initially uh, interested in medicine and maybe oncology and pharmacology. And uh, then we did our third year clinical rotations and I discovered orthopedics. And I went into the OR and they had all these tools laid out on the table. Like, oh my God, this is incredible. This is better than the hardware store. So um, never turned Actually, on. Actually, they, they have better than us. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, so it's it's been great. So that's a little capitalization of uh, kind of where I came from and my journey through uh, training. So when did you get to, to Maryland and uh, get involved in MedKai? Well, I... Uh, course, going to Georgetown, I was in D.C. for nine years because I took a year off between junior and senior year of college, got married and worked full time at the Marriott, attending bar and being a bellman and thinking about what I wanted to do and enjoying being married. And uh, then so then I applied for medical schools and uh, then uh, I'm sorry, uh, for a residency. And at that time, you had to uh, apply to both military and, and and they also had the opportunity to apply for civilian. And uh, so I really liked University of Maryland's program because they had shock trauma and they were one of the top shock trauma facilities in the entire country. And so they started it. Yeah. I mean, uh, the our items is incredible. And so I thought that would be phenomenal to do that. And so I convinced the army, I said, look, the army needs trauma surgeons. I'd love to go there. Can I do it? And so surprisingly enough, I convinced them I would have got paid better in the army, but um, it worked, <laughs> <laughs> worked out quite well. And then, uh, so that, that was my uh, journey to uh, Maryland and uh, living in Baltimore. And then, so as part of the, that was when the, the big renaissance in Baltimore and uh, was going on. And so that was exciting to uh, to be a part of that. And then uh, after residency, you know, then I had to uh, pay back my army time. And so then I called all around and tried to see who was going to have a position open that that I might like. And we looked at uh, uh, Fort Campbell down in uh, Tennessee. It's a 101st uh, air assault. And then I, we looked at, um, uh, at the, down in Louisville where Fort Knox is because of my, a lot of my wife's family is in Louisville, Kentucky. And of course, with her family from there, I had to learn how to say Louisville instead of Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that worked out really well. Wonderful part of the family. And then uh, so yeah, I ended up being at Fort Meade. So join the army, see the world, and but Fort Meade, <laughs> I was there. Interesting place because most of the people that are there would rather you not know they even exist because it's very um, focused on uh, military intelligence and counterintelligence and NSA and all these little organizations that do interesting things around the world. And you couldn't ask them what they did. No, and when I did, they sometimes told me I can't tell you that. And so I, I remember right. one guy who looked like a hippie, full beard, and active duty army. 
I did a knee arthroscopy. I said, well, what do you have to do? I said, well, I can't really tell you that. I said, well, you sometimes have to jump out of airplanes. He goes, yeah. But okay, well, you can't do that for about six weeks and uh, just keep going with your rehab and, and work hard at it. Thank you very much. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> and the next week you jumped out an airplane. I'm sure. <laughs> and then, so when did, when did you start you know, getting involved with MedKai and, and doing advocacy work? Well, interestingly, advocacy work started in high school. So in high school, you know, I went to uh, a Catholic uh, high school. And so funding became more and more challenging. And so there was a bill which would have provided some state aid for private and parochial high schools. And so a whole lot of schools around the greater Albany area in New York got involved in lobbying. And so they, and I was on the, on the debate team in high school and, and a public speaking team. So I learned something about that. And I was also in plays. And so we spent a lot of time in Albany lobbying for this bill, which we got, as usual, in, at the legislature, we didn't get exactly what we wanted, but we got more than if we had done nothing. And and then in medical school, I got the Army scholarship, like most of the people in our class got one of the military or public health scholarships. And so it was, uh, the deal was you got your tuition, your books, and 400 a month in 1970s dollars, which is pretty good. Mm. But the, then the IRS ruled within a few months after we all got that scholarship program that really it was not a scholarship that it was a quid pro quo it was payments to be for services that would be rendered in the future and that by virtue of that instead of getting 400 a month we would owe 600 a month when none of us had any money at all and it's like well this is what it is this is the deal and like what do we do now so about 20 of us from georgetown and george washington got together in sophomore year medical school, and we spent over six weeks. And uh, my wife was in law school at the time, and she had been taking this course called the Dance of Legislation, which is a, a fascinating and practical course. And we started getting a bunch of us together and talking about it. And then we learned that, you know, in the Senate, you can do corrective amendments and, and do amendments on unrelated bills that would do what you want. So we spent time working with then Senator Dole's office and his health legislative assistant was a nurse that Maureen got to know, my wife, and it worked. You know, we would go in and start talking to the legislative aides. Oh, why should we help you guys? You guys are going to be doctors, going to make a lot of money. I said, you know, you're absolutely right. We really need to get doctors in, in underserved areas in the Indian Health Service and in rural areas. We need doctors in the military to support our troops. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in view of what the IRS did, it's subverting the will of Congress. You really need to support this amendment. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's great. So anyway, I think it's the most successful legislation I've ever been involved with because we got exactly what we wanted. And we're in the gallery when the bill came up and the amendments came up and it all passed. And, and so we basically saved the HPSP program. Never thought of it that way at that time, but I was telling a friend of mine recently that who had a Navy uh, HPSP scholarship and, and a career in the Navy. And uh, I guess that's what we did. And so it was like, wow, you know, we can, a bunch of guys can get together, guys and girls and, and make a difference. And I got involved in the American Medical Students Association during medical school. And then uh, following uh, military, I was joined a practice here in Anne Arundel County in private practice. And then you know, there were a lot of issues. HMOs started to become popular and significant reductions in our, our pay. And then during one of the huge upticks in, uh, in malpractice premiums, uh, MedKai became very active in working hard for reform. And I started getting involved. And Dr. Hilary O'Herlihy, 
was a cardiologist at Baltimore Washington Medical Center where I was, it was then called North Rundle Hospital. And interestingly, he was an Irish immigrant, came from County Cork, Ireland, had a, had a wonderful uh, Irish accent. And so he- I remember him. He was on chair of the legislative committee a couple of times as president of MedCai. And he said, yeah, you really need to get involved with these people. They're great. And so he really mentored me and encouraged me. And so I did. And that was the beginning of it. And uh, and so became part of the solution. You know, I, I thought to myself at the time, you know, we all grumble and, and whine sometimes, you know, you're changing the scrubs in the, in the uh, OR lounge and grousing about this and grousing about that. Well, it's like, well, we could do that. And that doesn't make much, it's not, it's not very effective or go down to the legislature and at least talk to some people that might make a difference. And even though you might not get exactly what you want, it'll, it feels good to do that. And it feels good to work with your colleagues at doing that. And, um, and it does work. And so uh, I got hooked. <laughs> so, and I like being part of something much bigger than ourselves, you know, being with like-minded people and uh, people, you know, just colleagues working together for a, for a common cause. Right. So you've been on the board of MedKai, and now that you're, you're president, um, you know, which is uh, having been there myself, I know it's a very busy year. What kind of things are you doing and have you been doing and what are your plans? So I did start a committee, a task force on child behavioral health. And so at the beginning of the your term, it's traditional for the president to identify a problem of concern in, in the community and society and to try to do something about it. And so just reading around and keeping track of things, it became scary to read about the significant increase in anxiety and depression and suicides in kids. And I have two grandchildren now and I'm thinking, you know, what's the world going to be like for them? And the, the uh, devastating effect of social media on kids and then COVID on top of that. So I decided to do that. And um, so being an orthopedic surgeon, that's kind of a bit out of my lane. So somebody once said, uh, the thing to do if you want to make a difference is to surround yourself with people who are smarter than yourself. Mm. So I did that. We have some great uh, child psychiatrists and former MedKai presidents and other uh, colleagues on this committee. And it's been fantastic. And so we've spent a lot of time looking at the problem, identifying the, the areas of, of concern and interest, identifying bills in the legislature and lobbying for them and quite successfully this year and looking at more focused areas where we might make a difference. We were initially thinking of working on setting up screening programs for depression uh, modeled on a program in Pennsylvania, although Maryland does not have the infrastructure to do that very well. So now what we've moved on to is the idea of promoting the Adolescent Depression Awareness Program, which is a program started by Dr. Karen Schwartz at Johns Hopkins, who's a professor of psychiatry there. And so our goal would be to do a pilot of that in some of the high schools. We have our first meeting uh, actually in a couple of weeks with the superintendent of schools for Anne Arundel County. And we'll hopefully be able to kick that off and, and then spread it and, and it's been going on. She's done this for 20 years around the country. And I think there's been at least 130,000 kids or so that have gone through and have done level one studies demonstrating its effectiveness. So I'm very hopeful that this will, will make a difference. And, you know, are there, are there going to be bills in, in Annapolis that uh, will help with that? Not specifically with that. It, it, it's not really relevant for legislation at this time. It's more for a program to just be initiated in 
several pilots and uh, at least getting the fund goes and get it working and then the next step may be through the state department of education and we have a fantastic uh, government relations uh, team and especially uh pam metz uh, who has largely responsible for public health uh, issues who uh, knows the entire landscape of this and has been a, a huge help in our abilities and our, our, our work on that committee so the work is ongoing and there's more to come but it's uh, a pleasure to be able to at least try to to make a difference yeah that's absolutely a a, a valid and wonderful you know thing to do uh what other kind of medical uh programs have you been involved with you know that that directly affects uh, physicians and their patients? Well, in orthopedics, I was a member of the American Academy of Orthopedics Board of Counselors. And so what the Board of Counselors is, there'll be two or three orthopedists from each state that forms this uh, board. And it's the policymaking arm, it's the grassroots policymaking arm of the academy. And so we would meet several times a year. And I remember during the whole healthcare reform, process we actually had a meeting with healthcare leaders from around the country and so we learned about the english and the german and the french healthcare system and others and what are the advantages what are the disadvantages what's going on with our healthcare system how can we be involved and you know what can we push forward with and then every year we would meet in washington and then we would meet with each state group would meet with their senators and uh, congressmen or their representatives uh, in reference to healthcare related legislation. So we we're very involved in the healthcare reform under the Obama administration. Although it was quite frustrating because often we would come up with ideas that were from the trenches and the grassroots and they would say, well, no, that's not right. So there was a, a definite discouraging partisan aspect to it, but nevertheless, I think it did help. And uh, it was it was very beneficial and, and uh, very grateful to be a part of that process. And also in um, have been involved in leadership in in the hospitals at Baltimore Washington Medical Center. I was in the presidential line and went all the way through MedExec and was president of the medical staff there. And uh, so it was a privilege to be a part of that and to understand hospitals and how they work and and to be the bridge between the medical staff and, and hospitals and how to improve communications and and help everybody along in, in our ability to to do what we do in, in uh, taking care of patients. Yeah, that's certainly a thankless job that uh, <laughs> on on the hospital level. I've been there myself. So tell me more about uh, things that are going on in Annapolis. Uh, we we did something about step therapy. Yes, you know the insurance companies. A few years ago, we had uh, legislation and successfully passed that would restrict the ability of insurance companies to force physicians to use a series of drugs, for instance, in anti-inflammatories, let's say um, you wanted to use one of the newer, more up-to-date anti-inflammatories because they had bad reactions to or were not tolerating some of the others, and that we wanted to go right to, let's say, Celebrex or something like that, and we couldn't do it. We'd have to do the mother may I and, and maybe force patients to use something that was not very effective or potentially harmful. And and so we thought we solved that problem, then they figured out ways of getting around it. And so they have step therapy. And this, this really affects oncology and rheumatology. And there's a lot of biologics that are used. And then patients will sometimes uh, develop allergies to them. And so that uh, the first line treatment against rheumatoid arthritis may have been helpful for a couple of years, then they become allergic to it, then they have to go to step 
second line, third line, and so on, and they would run into roadblocks. And so maybe a patient would have basically no medication for a month or two and then be un unable to work. And so it's it's really all about dollars. And we're trying to take care of our patients as, as effectively as possible based on everything that we have learned. And, uh, and so this year, we had a huge effort to pass a bill that would limit that. And it got a lot of traction. Obviously, the insurance companies lobbied hard against our ability to have these reforms. And we did get a bill that restricts step therapy, but that's only a piece of the problem. And there was a promise for them to, on, on their part, to meet with us and, and to continue the dialogue on that. So we're going to be holding them to task on that. Uh, we're always keeping our ears open for what the Platus Bar is doing in terms of uh, medical liability. And so there was one bill which could have negatively affected that and we were able to, to get that quashed. And so the um, legislature is really like the NCAA tournament. You know, I've, I've given a talk <laughs> frequently about what advocacy is about. And uh, it's, and, and uh, yeah, I talk about the legislative process, you know, somebody comes up with an idea for a bill, a bill is written, it goes and is heard, it goes to committee. I said, no, 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 it's not that at all. It's, it's like the NCAA tournament. You got a team. You you want to put together a basketball team or a soccer team. You want them to do well. You, you, you bring in some good quality talent coaches. You look for talent to bring on the team. And then you just want to do well. You want to get into the tournament. And then this, you want to do well enough to get into the second round. And you want to get to the final four. You want to win. But that takes many, many years. And each year, the whole process is restarted. And so it's about building relationships. It's about us going out. And, and meeting with our legislators and meeting with our, our state senator and our, our state delegates and supporting them in, in their campaign runs because it's it's hard to run for office. So they, they need funds to do that. And so we just have dialogues and become friends. And so that when issues come up regarding healthcare, they give us a phone call, say, what, what do you think about this bill? Is, it, is this good, bad, or what, what should I? And so uh, that relationship blossoms and and so sometimes you get involved with somebody and become friends and that person rises perhaps in the uh, hierarchy of the legislature. And so you can have an, an increasing impact. Let's, let's take a quick break now. We're speaking with Dr. Jim, Jim York, who is president of MedKai. Funding for this podcast has been made possible by iPrescribe. Toss your prescription pad. Now there's a safe and easy way to prescribe any drug from your smartphone while you're away from the office. The app includes access to your patient's medical history, state PDMPs, clinical alerts, and more. Visit iprescribe.com to learn more. Welcome back to MedCast, the podcast from MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society. We're continuing our discussion with Dr. Jim York as he discusses advocacy and the NCAA tournament. Um, <laughs> so you, you were talking, great, about you know, it's a, it's a great analogy because we have a great team. We have, uh, our legislative council, it's 150 or more people that volunteer their time from January all the way through April. And we have it divided into subcommittees of, uh, boards and commissions, public health, and then health insurance. And then we have people on each of those subcommittees. And then we have uh, Sunday morning 
phone calls where we reviewed bills and go over discussion and set up preliminary talking points and positions. And then Monday evening, it'll go before the entire commission or board, us or um, legislative committee, and we'll have further discussion and then form policy. And we'll go through maybe 2,000, 2,500 bills. And so that we know what the bills are, what the issues are, how we want to approach it. Do we want to support, support with amendment? Do we want to defeat it? And then our legislative team, our, our government relations team, will go to Annapolis and will testify along with us. It's extremely important for us to be down there and testify from our point of view. Absolutely. That's what it's like. Sometimes we'll even bring patients who have had experiences and who can testify. And that's a, and they listen to us. See, we're, we're really respected down there. It's very, it's very interesting for me to know and learn when I started getting involved there. They, they think a lot of us. And so it does make a difference. You're walking around in a white coat. They can identify who you are and they will, will listen to what you have to say. They understand all of the training and experience we have and all the hours that we uh, put into taking care of, of patients. And, and of course, nowadays after COVID, how, how difficult things are. And as you mentioned before, getting to know the legislators in even between sessions is, is most important because that way they get to know who you are with any kind of uh, idea or uh, policy. And then when it comes around to uh, being in Annapolis, they know, they know you and know that you're a straight shooter. I think at this point, I need to also put in a plug for uh, the Maryland Medical Pack uh, as we talk about uh, advocacy. Uh, everybody listening should always uh, uh, help contribute uh, to the legislators uh, by way of our Maryland Medical Pack. Uh, back to uh, advocacy, uh, we, walked, we talked about uh, prior authorization uh, and things that are going on with that. Can you talk about that some? Well, I think that we covered it pretty well. Um, you know, we're, we will continue the, the dialogue on that and, and continue our legislative efforts uh, next year. The other thing that we do is we interact with the executive department. So we have spent a lot of time with the Health Services Cost Review Commission. They have a subcommittee on physician alignment. And so Maryland is an odd state, and it's the only state where there's a Medicare waiver which means that Medicare basically sends this huge pot of money over to the hospitals and then they use it according to how the Health Services Cost Review Commission decides they should be paid, so on. And so it's a, it's a very, it's a, a global budget paradigm, which is very unusual. But of course, we get paid through insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, private, or if we're employed in whatever deal we make with the, the hospitals through contracting. But ultimately, the hospital payment system is extremely important for how healthcare is rendered and paid for. And there are now programs that are being established in which if physicians come together, whether they're primary care under the Maryland Primary Care Program or now with, with uh, specialists uh, in a program called EQUIP, which um, has a, about quality improvement program, so for example, orthopedists, if we do a really good job and we do total joints and other similar surgeries uh, and, and come under budget and, and have savings based on what prior historical uh, costs have been, we'll actually get to keep 
uh, a portion of that. And this has worked particularly well in the private sector, in the hospital employed sector, there's still work to be done and how, how that money flows to um, the uh, employed physicians. But it is the opportunity now for specialists in addition to primary cares to partner with hospitals, to partner with healthcare organizations so that we can come up with our ideas in the trenches of, it's only we that really know how to properly take care of a patient and save money so that we're not also putting a patient at risk or in some way harming the patient. And there's a lot of people with um, masters in, in public health or executive level people that will come up with ideas and they might be okay and they might not. And it's in working closely with us as physicians, it's truly the only way that we can move the needle on making things more efficient, decreasing cost and, and having something that uh, may be a model for what could be done in, in other states. And physicians do need to be the leaders of the healthcare team. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, I made an analogy once. Uh, back in the Clinton years, there was the, the whole thing with attempted healthcare reform, but they had these huge commissions to do it and they had hardly any physicians on it at all. And I thought, well, geez, that would be like having a, a, a reform committee on air traffic control, but they didn't have any air traffic controllers or maybe only a pilot or two, but they had doctors there. And I would think, well, let's see, having two miles between planes, that seems about enough separation. It might be okay, but it might be a disaster. No idea. So, yeah. Well, on, on, this, <laughs> on, on the, same, the same note, I think the new CEO of the American College of Cardiology is, uh, is a nurse. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I noted that. So what other things are you involved in and what are your future plans uh, with MedCi and um, and other advocacy things, either uh, locally or in the uh, AAOS, or now that you're a, a delegate to the AMA? Well, to, just to continue to be involved. You know, we started this uh, task force on uh, child behavioral health. And um, so we're going to continue to work on that and continue our works with our uh, colleagues and partners over in Health Services Cost Review Commission and the, the hospital systems to continue working together on making things better in Maryland. Um, I have fun things I like to do. I'm a, we're, we're Ravens fans in our family. And so we have seasons tickets to the uh, Ravens. And uh, interestingly, uh, in the uh, COVID period, you'd go home and you're like, oh, geez, I need to disconnect. And so I ended up uh, listening to a whole series of podcasts and stuff and uh, about um, ham radio. I ended up getting my FCC amateur radio license. So I use it a lot, but uh, it's an interesting thing to do. And I'm part of an organization called the amateur physician radio council or something like that. So it's interesting because we'll get together and have these communications around the world about things that are problems and issues that are happening around the world. And, um, and when the nuclear oh. pulse happens, uh, you'll be, be the only, you'll be the <laughs> only one able to communicate. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, been a fun thing to do. I've, I've been involved in our community and uh, coaching soccer for a long time. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. Now I'll be probably coaching uh, grandkids, although my daughter will be a better coach since she played all the way up through college. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as we're uh, taping this, uh, you know, we're in the middle of the uh, Women's World Cup. When this uh, finally airs, we'll be uh, well past it and we'll know uh, how well the American women have done. But it doesn't look good as of now. Yeah, there's a lot of concern. Hopefully, they'll they'll really uh, pull it together. And in fact, my younger daughter just uh, flew over there. She she's now in uh, either Australia or New Zealand, and uh, she went to the she's uh, 
an attorney down in North Carolina and a big soccer fan. She's a supports the North Carolina Courage, and she still plays recreational soccer a little bit. She went to the uh, World Cup when it was in France, and now she's gone to Australia. That's good. So what kinds of things got you through the COVID epidemic, and how did that change your uh, your practice and uh, uh, the hospital that you work in? You know, we did a lot of interesting things. Uh, we were very good at quickly switching over to telemedicine. So at work, we are on the Epic system, and they had just started putting things in place to do telemedicine video visits. And it was, the infrastructure was there enough that we could quickly switch over to that. So we would have one day a week open, or you went in person to see people that you really, really had to see in person. <clears throat> and uh, then everything else was telemedicine. So we rotated through that. And so we still did emergency surgeries. All the elective surgeries, of course, were uh, stopped. And part of it because the anesthesia was pulled into the ICUs and Interventional Medical Center because of our capture area of Anne Arundel County and Prince George's County just had a lot of patients there with, with COVID. And so all, it was all hands on deck to uh, take care of them in any way possible. In fact, we were retrained to um, be medical doctors. <laughs> so, <laughs> I actually... Not, not easy for an orthopedist. Oh my God. I said, oh, poor people. No, I, that worked out well. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't have to do that, um, but you know, we were ready to do it. We rolled up our sleeves and did all the retraining and all these courses. And then we, another interesting thing is, uh, as soon as we shut down, one of the guys in our practice had some experience and knew some guys that were expertise on doing wide awake local anesthesia. And so because we didn't have anesthesiologists, there is a technique for using a lot of local anesthesia. It's done an hour before the case. And there's a specific way of doing it so that you can do some major surgeries on limbs with the patient wide awake and not intubated. And so we became expert at doing that. We had this uh, podcast Zoom meeting, actually, between this guy in Thailand and this other guy in New York, where he was teaching us how to do it. And then we started doing it. I remember doing a um, quadriceps rupture, and it was one that was discovered late. So he was significantly retracted. So it was a huge surgery. You had to go halfway up the leg and do some reconstructive stuff to get it all together. Totally wide awake, no pain. Right completely comfortable. And so we did a lot of that kind of work and have published papers on that. So we're pro very proud to do that. That's very interesting. But in uh, in COVID, you know, we had to kind of be our own secretary. So we're meeting ourselves coming and going and doing more work with a lot less infrastructure because that's just the way it was. And and it's continued a lot. It's now been getting better. I, our um, institution is, is uh, doing a better and better job, just like everybody else. I'm trying to hire people and train people and keep people. It was, it was difficult to keep people in healthcare during that time. My uh, niece was a nurse in Texas. And so during the worst of the COVID, we had a lot, almost weekly conversations about things that were going on, kind of encouraging each other. She was uh, in an orthopedic floor in a big hospital down in near the Dallas, Texas area. Uh, mm. So I think we'll all have our sleeves rolled up. There's more work to be done and maybe less infrastructure to do it with. And so we're, we're being innovative. And uh, I like being innovative, thinking of different ways of doing things. I, I've always been a little bit of an IT geek. So uh, I like working with computers and coming up with uh, nice IT solutions to problems that we have. I actually got uh, facile with the Linux operating system uh, during part of COVID and did a lot of changes in the way I set up Epic to practice to, to make it more efficient. 
Did you did you tinker with their system? No, and nothing in the gut. So I'd like to learn how to do that at some point. <laughs> Just what's available for you to do in terms of templates and uh, doing automation through the Dragon Dictate system. And um, there's a, a, something a little bit like VBA that they had for a while, and then they changed the way that worked. But uh, now it's fun to tinker around with things, make it better. Yeah, as a in my as blood. A as an aside, when I first started in medicine and we got our first computer back in the uh, in the 80s, it was all written in basic. And all you had to do is hit the escape key and type list and you saw the, all the code. And so I would rewrite their code and I would write my side routines and all that. And, you know, they, they always hated it when when I did that kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> I actually did the same thing. I learned the Microsoft Access and learned to. Uh, the Microsoft Visual Basic for applications and uh, and did some applications that I used in my old practice. So they had a, a EMR system, but there's a lot of inefficiencies in it. And so I set up something that I could use on my laptop that would like assemble things together in a certain way. And then I would port it over to the EMR system and, and save a bunch of time. Yeah, we should talk. <laughs> I did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of okay. fun. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. What would we, what would you be doing if you were not a physician? I'd probably be a chemical engineer. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I love to go to the Renaissance Festival, and you, you look at all things that were done back in the you know the 14th century, or whatever. And I thought, well, um, I probably would be a uh, we call that when they uh, the, a for a forger with uh, you know making swords and uh-huh. blacksmith a blacksmith. Uh-huh. You know. So what I would do now, um, I, yeah, I love to work with my hands and tinkering with things. Um, you know, I have a couple of good friends who were, well, my brother is in, got into electrical engineering and got into a, a really interesting line of that. And uh, I thought of chemical and had friends that would, did some interesting, uh, had some interesting careers in chemical engineering. And, uh, you know, I was working as a, as a bellman they came to me and said, you know, if you stay with us, you could become a, a Marriott manager. So it's, it's interesting, the different, everything you've ever done applies and, and you learn from it. And so uh, it, uh, I don't think I would have ever pursued that because I love to play with things too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you currently reading or watching or listening to? Um, I like to listen to YouTubes and podcasts. And so they're, I just started um, a couple of podcasts on this uh, social psychologist who has done a lot of very interesting work on social media and the effect of social media as it became more widespread and after the effect of putting these algorithms in it that would basically capture people's heads and, and, um, and how that helps to explain the polarization and divisiveness in our uh, in our society, in, in mostly English-speaking society, because it happened in the US, Canada, England, and Australia around the same time, and a little bit differently in, in non-English-speaking countries. Interesting. And uh, very interesting. And so he's, uh, and the same thing on college campuses. Why did college campuses, why do people feel like they need to be safe instead of exploring ideas? Colleges used to be a place where you can go and be open to ideas. And now we have to shut down ideas. Uh, and so it's like, how do we work, work our way through that? And, and so the, um, the whole idea is like, 
you know, we, we invented fire way back and then we um, now in the, the invention of the internet and now social media is sort of like a new invention of fire, which is extremely useful and practical and wonderful and opens up tremendous opportunities, <clears throat> but when used in the wrong way, it can be destructive. And so I think that we need to understand that better. And I think he's done some very interesting work in that area. And so as part of this, this committee, part of what we're doing too is, is looking at <clears throat> research papers and, and work that's been done on the effect of uh, social media and kids. And so that you know, sort of like driving a car, maybe we people need some training in especially kids and what are the effects of social media? How will this affect you? How does it affect your head? If a whole lot of people are, are talking badly about you, what does it mean? What's really going on? How do you deal with that, especially mm. in middle school? Well, speaking of kids, what advice would you give to your younger self? You're going to be okay. You're, you're going to do well. It's uh, keep going, keep doing what you're doing, which is kind of what I did. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a rebel, a little, a little push hard. Hey, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Come hell or high water. <laughs> I was like uh, me in, uh, in college and first two years of medical school, I had no car. So I basically rode my bicycle everywhere in DC through all neighborhoods, across the 14th street bridge, Southeast Southwest freeway. I was in great shape. I was rode over hundred miles a week. Some people say, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to Dr. Jim York, who has been our guest on MedCast, the podcast from MedCi, the Maryland State Medical Society. Tune in next time as we continue our conversations with the leaders of medicine in Maryland to discuss the issues facing physicians and our patients. For all of us here at MedCi, I'm Dr. Stephen Rockauer. Thank you and goodbye.